Good afternoon, the back community. Uh, as always, thank you for staying involved. Thank you for staying engaged. Uh, tonight, we have uh, uh, an individual who has political aspirations of running for Congress, and we're going to be able to dive into his story a little bit tonight. Uh, the back community, I would like you guys to welcome Rostislav Rar, who's running for Congress. Uh, uh, for all purposes throughout tonight's interview, I will be calling you Slava for the rest of the interview because it's definitely going to be easier for me. But uh, uh, thank you for uh, 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 opening up your uh, time and schedule uh, to be interviewed on the back community. Uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, as I just told you before we started recording, it's really an honor to be here and, and I love your show and I'm very excited to do this. Uh, so let's get into it. Okay. All right. I like, I like the way you do business. Uh, well, well, the very first thing is um, for those who do not know you in the Capital District area, I know uh, uh, for the area of Congress that you are hoping to, uh, uh, to actually secure uh, in that position, uh, you're going to be overseeing Albany, Schenectady, and Troy, correct? Yeah, uh, it, and that not just Albany, Schenectady, Troy. The district actually goes all the way up to Saratoga, and it goes to into Rensselaer County, and it goes all the way down to Ravenna, and it goes all the way out to uh, Amsterdam. However, um, it's we are in a, a process of redistricting right now, so mm -hmm. they're going to draw a new district. So it's actually not certain what district um, we are all going to end up in, and if if Paul Tonko, who represents the 20th district where I'm running, is still going to be part of uh, the Albany district. So mm -hmm. it's possible that because he lives in Amsterdam, it's possible that he'll get split away. But I'm sure that we'll still be in the same district because we both live in Albany. So, <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. And actually, uh, to be honest, so uh, even though I'm in and out of Albany very, very often, uh, I moved away from Albany uh, 2013. I'm in the DC metro area, but I still own a house there in Albany, uh, and I'm uh, I'm back there with my family pretty often. But as you can tell, uh, 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 my bones or my foundation is there in Albany. But enough about me. Let me uh, get the uh, capital district area to know more about you, Slava. So uh, if you don't mind, here's your opportunity to tell the back community about you. Uh, uh, let me know uh, uh, who you are, what you're doing, and what kind of work you do, sir. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I think if, if you want to understand me, uh, you have to think about uh, my identity as that of an immigrant. So I, um, I was born in 1989. Uh, and uh, I was born in Siberia, uh, in uh, the southern Siberia, and it was a time of uh, that was really difficult for Russia. Uh, you know, people in Russia didn't have food. Our government fell apart. We, um, like, my father was a scientist, but he wasn't getting paychecks. Um, my mom tells stories how we had to split an apple three ways between her, me, and my dad. It was a really difficult time. So my family decided to immigrate. And uh, they were lucky enough because my dad was a scientist to uh, be able to move to Japan and then Germany. Mm. And then um, eventually when I was nine, when I was nine years old, um, we moved to Alabama and then Tennessee, and then finally settled in upstate New York when I was mm. a sophomore in high school, okay. uh, going into my junior year. Um, so we settled in Niskayuna near Schenectady. Um, and then I went to SUNY Albany for college and I ended up working in New York state government for an assemblyman from Brooklyn. And I kind of became his 
uh, you could say, uh, maybe not his right-hand person, but maybe his left-hand person. Um, we would travel back and forth from New York City, from Brooklyn to, uh, to Albany every single week. And I would work on his community work. I would also work on his legislative priorities up in Albany. Um, and I would always stay with my mom in Niskayuna, who still lives there when I was here. Um, and so I did that kind of work, uh, familiarized myself with uh, translating community work into legislation. But honestly, I had a really bad taste in my mouth after being in politics for six years. I thought I wanted to give it up. I never wanted to look back. And I, and, and I decided to go to law school. And, and um, so, so anyway, I went to law school uh, at NYU um, for three years. And then after finishing, started doing nonprofit work with immigration. And that's when, that's when uh, Trump came into office. Well, around the time I started started law school, actually, and but he was still in office when I got my first job out of law school, and I saw how um, the the type of uh, work I was doing at that time was trying to push back against some of his uh, more draconian immigration policies. So, if you heard okay. of public charge, he tried to make it really difficult for people to come into this country um, uh, to immigrate into this country. It also personally affected me because. My grandma still lives in Siberia and has dementia and my family hasn't been able to get her to the United States because of our draconian immigration laws. So I was working with other attorneys trying to push back against Trump, but I saw how powerful his office was, that you could have thousands of attorneys who wanted to do the right thing. And yet, because you had a powerful executive uh, and an inactive uh, uh, useless legislature, uh, you, you, you had uh, the, the situation where uh, people were getting hurt and no matter how many attorneys you put on the other side of the equation, you couldn't make progress. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's when I realized I wanted to actually go back into policymaking, go back into politics because I felt like I didn't really have a choice. It, you know, earlier when you said, you, you know, you, you said something like, uh, you feel like I have an aspiration towards political office, but I don't view it as an aspiration. I view it as a lack of choice. You know, my, mm -hmm. my family left Russia because they didn't have a choice. They uh, could have stayed in Russia and tried to fight back against the government and the regime there, but uh, it would have been risky. I mean, they could have lost their lives. Uh, we, we see journalists in Russia getting killed all the time. It's, it's not a safe situation if you want to be a political actor. Um, but, uh, and, and with Trump, it felt like I also didn't have a choice, especially when um, he did so many things wrong, but with the pandemic, the way he dismissed the pandemic as a non-issue, as something that's just gonna go away when it was so obvious about the dangers of, of this disease. And having a president like that, it, it made me feel like I didn't have a choice, I had to run. I like that, I like that. Um, and, and, and actually just to circle back on some of the things that you uh, said, uh, uh, one, having the ties to Niskayuna, my brother and his family live out in Niskayuna now, and then uh, hearing that uh, you went to UAlbany and then uh, started to work for uh, one of the um, uh, politicians there. My wife did the same thing. She went to UAlbany for undergrad, uh, got into uh, grassroots uh, work working for a politician there and then decided to go to, to law school after she ended up um, getting her master's too. But then she went to law school as well. Um, so uh, it seems like parallel paths uh, wow. on the road to trying to uh, 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 make a change. So uh, 
I always listen to what you say and I find, uh, as my wife always tells me, I'm always looking for connection. I'm always looking for connecting pieces. So I didn't know that you grew up in, in, in this community. So that's, it's, it's right around the corner. So. Yeah, yeah. And we can talk about growing up in this community because I, I think it's such a, such an interesting place to grow up, um, especially with my experience, because it's, you know, it's a very white community. Yep. And, and I didn't feel like I fit in at all, even though I'm white, I felt like I was, I was kind of an outsider all the time because uh, it felt like um, people had formed bonds, you know, th throughout their life there. And then I was coming in as a junior in high school and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it, it was, it was very difficult. Um, I didn't even go to my graduation. I, I wrote a mm -hmm. letter to principal I said I, I just don't don't feel like uh, you know it makes sense for me to go to graduation but um, but but yeah there's something about me given the fact of my background and my experience that I always looked at people and societies kind of from the outside you know when I was in Japan I was surrounded by Asian people and it uh, and I, I didn't feel like I belonged either. And then when I was in Germany, I went to a school for immigrants where, you know, uh, people in Germany, they felt like immigrants shouldn't get the same education as, as German kids because, you know, they were so far behind. We, we, at the time, it felt like they were kind of giving up on us. Um, and then when I was in Alabama, it was a whole different story because the, the schools were, were segregated internally. So um, I, I was in an English class. At first they placed me in an in English class for people with disabilities because I didn't speak English. Mm. I, I, I had never spoken English until I was nine years old or 10 years old actually. So um, they, they put me in a class for people with disabilities and I begged them to move me out of there because they mm. were just still learning like how to count from one to 10. Um, and they did, but they placed me, uh, they ended up placing me um, in an English class which was the lower level English class, which was mm. all black. And I was the only white student in an all black English mm. class. And then they had um, a math class, which was because I tested out of all the math classes because I was actually really good at math. Um, they placed me in an all white math class. Mm. It, it, and and it, was, it was kind of just incredible for me to see like, and try to make sense of what, how these systems work and how, like how I, I'm part of it too, because I'm like existing within these systems. And um, I guess at the time I didn't know what systemic racism was, but, yeah. but I, I was, I was part of it kind of. Um, and and then, how it's different and, and how it's different for different people. Uh, yes. What I love, what I love about your story was that you were uniquely placed in uh, so many different atmospheres and one in which you didn't identify as uh, 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 as your place. So you're around all black people, you're around all white people, you're around, uh, you're in Japan, you're wh wherever you are is like you said, there's always a place where you feel like you didn't identify with where you were. But I also think that that gives you a lot of other qualities that a lot of people may be missing too and having the compassion and, sen and sensitivity for ethnic uh, ethnicities and, and different cultures, you know, uh, and it, it really breeds a different type of person. So I'm looking forward to see uh, uh, how that has shaped you and um, actually, um, yeah, uh, how it has shaped you and how it has governed uh, 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 what you ended up getting uh, uh, getting into, so. Yeah, yeah. If, I, if, I, if I could just respond to that. Um, 
it, that's exactly right. So, so I, I do Airbnb. People come to my house to stay here uh, in one of the bedrooms that we ran out to make some extra money. And because I just am very social, I love talking to people. Mm. And uh, recently I had a guest come. And uh, at first, my first impression was he looked like a hippie. Um, he had really long hair and he seemed to be like really cool. And, I, and so I proudly told him that I just came home from a protest to ban tear gas in Albany. I, I don't know if you remember that. That was a couple of weeks ago. There was a big protest in front of City Hall to ban tear gas. So I told him, oh, I just came from tear gas. And he looked really kind of upset with me. He's like, why ban tear gas? Like it's tear gas, you know, uh, in his book, there's nothing wrong with tear gas. So I realized he was actually really conservative. So we started talking about these issues of policing and issues of Black Lives Matter. And, um, and I was able to um, kind of understand where he was coming from. Because I, I remember telling him, I said, if, if I had stayed in Niskayuna, if I had never left Niskayuna, if I had grown up in Niskayuna, and, I had, and, I, and my whole life was surrounded by a police department, which mm. felt, um, I mean, they never bothered us, at least. It, it felt like, uh, even perhaps it felt like they protected us. So if you grow up in the suburban area like that and you're never exposed to any kind of other experience, of course you're not gonna get the idea that po police can be racist or are racist in many communities. Um, and, and he was like, when I, once I told him that, he was like nodding, he's like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, or at least I, I see where you're coming from. Okay, and uh, I think uh, uh, to be honest, you know, that's, uh, that's the balance or that is the, that's the starting point. I'm not gonna say a balance. That's the starting point for any type of change to be able to have a conversation, uh, uh, to be able to dialogue uh, on those differences because there's a lot of things that like are unspoken and we never really talk about. And that's one of the things that I do love about what happened uh, in 2020 uh, after George Floyd's uh, death. It did force us to talk about things that we all knew existed we all knew about um, institutionalized racism. We always knew that different people get treated differently, but we never really addressed it uh, as, a, uh, as a country um, in ways that uh, uh, we see it being talked about now. Some is just uh, routine and some it's not really changing some people, but for people who are genuinely interested in the conversation and talk, it has allowed us to have a conversation uh, around and understand how race does matter. Uh, um, in a place like here, so, but yeah. Yeah, I think these types of conversations you have to uh, approach with empathy and you have to try to figure out where the other person is coming from. And because yeah. in this particular case, the, the whole reason this person had this worldview was that he was coming from a suburban environment and he had spent yeah. his whole life within a suburban environment. For me being able to tell him, hey, I would have I thought exactly the same thing if I wasn't exposed to other experiences. That made him start to think a little bit. I agree. I agree. I think uh, in 2001, I might have had a, a similar experience. Uh, I, I think I told you off air. It was like I lived in Morocco for a while as I was studying abroad and studying Arabic. And that was right after 9-11. So a lot of people had their stereotypes or their their thoughts of, of, of what they thought the Arab world was like. And here I am, a kid from Albany, New York, uh, uh, that grew up in Arbor Hill. I'm now here and I'm telling everybody how beautiful uh, uh, it is, and, and, and the experience in Morocco uh, was life-changing for me. And uh, I, uh, you'll see me come back and I interact with, I got friends from, from, from Yemen, 
from uh, throughout Morocco. And it's just like, uh, you take an experience and the experience can really shape you and inform you in ways that uh, just hearing uh, about it uh, uh, through rhetoric, uh, I can't and it won't. So, you know, but yeah, but, but don't worry, I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to dissect uh, more about your story too. Uh, I, I'm gonna hit, I'm gonna hit you with some of your formal questions. Uh, because it seems like you and I uh, are both uh, 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 both talkers, so we can go down this path. <laughs> so uh, I want to make sure that I, I, I give the back community the opportunity to understand what you're running on, who you are, um, and, and different things like that. But I also want to uh, allow people to see your humanity, which is what you're already explaining to us uh, 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 in your background, just explaining how you've been through all of these different places and how it enables you to, to empathize uh, with it because you've had the a similar experiences for you so but yeah i like it i like it let me see um outside um outside of um uh, campaigning what is something that you're most passionate about most passionate about outside of campaigning um i feel like i'm passionate about a lot of things uh but well, well, one thing that's been a lifelong passion of mine is uh, is soccer. Okay. Uh, so I, I love playing soccer. I go always go to the Albany play with my friends. Uh, I I just I think uh, for me campaigning isn't like I, I don't know if if what I do is I feel like campaigning becomes part of life and life kind of becomes mm. part of campaigning like. So I, I try to read as much as I can. I mean, is that campaigning? No, it's, it's, it's not campaigning, but I still have a section in, uh, of books, which I'm like, oh, this could come in handy for the campaign. Yes. This, this is gonna help me understand what I'm dealing with. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm passionate. I was always very passionate about the environment. I, I it always hurt me uh, emotionally when I saw environmental pollution or when I had to breathe air that was unhealthy. Uh, it, it made me feel bad. Um, it's, it's, I wouldn't, I mean, it, the environment is perhaps the number one issue that I think I, I wanna campaign on, um, but uh, it's also something I'm really passionate about. So in a way, the campaign kind of permeates every part of my life. Um, but uh, another one is travel. You know, I, I really like traveling. And I've always liked traveling. And part of the, what this campaign is about is connecting my experiences as I travel the world, uh, including to, for example, Scandinavian countries and, and also read about Scandinavian countries to see how they do things differently and how they have a much stronger social safety net and seeing how we can take those lessons and we can import them into our society in the United States. Uh, okay. so, so, so my, my passions are intersectional. <laughs> that, that, I mean, but, uh, isn't, isn't it always most yeah. of the things that most of the things that we ended up, uh, we end up doing is, uh, uh, interrelated in some way, shape or form. We may not know it at the time. And then when all of the pieces of the puzzle start to come together, you say, Oh, I got that from that book. Or I got that from that experience. And it's like, now it's helping me on this platform now. But That's it's exactly all, right. yeah, exactly right. my opinion. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, let me see, I'm actually gonna ask this one too, uh, uh, even while I'm staying on, on the topic. Uh, what's your favorite place 
to visit in the Capital District and why? Um, to visit. I, I, I think my home. I really, I really like the, so I live in Pine Hills. Okay. And I, when I, when I am uh, here, I feel like part of a community, which I've never felt before. Mm. No matter where, where I lived, I've never known my neighbors. But mm. as soon as we moved to Pine Hills, every single neighbor on the left, on the right, mm -hmm. it, on the other side of the street came to us, introduced themselves. And every week we exchange food, we exchange stories. Mm. Um, they sit our, our cats when we were away. It, it's been, uh, whenever I, I come back home, I am so excited. Um, I think uh, I'm definitely a foodie. Um, okay. Cardona's uh, sandwiches, when I, when I get a, go there and get that Vinnie Boombat sandwich with prosciutto and, and red pepper uh, on that panini, oh my gosh. Okay. And of course, and of course, the movie theaters, a Spectrum movie theater, Spectrum. Is another great place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, it was nice to see when Spectrum did open back up uh, 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 through uh, through the pandemic. Um, but yeah, I know Cardona's too. Um, I actually went to school with a uh, with a few of them. Uh, but um, uh, and I believe they also, if 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 this is if this is the same Cardona family, they also used to have one uh, on. Am I joining? on Delaware Avenue um, as well? But um, but yeah, okay, okay, not bad, uh, and not bad choices in, in, in selections. I like that. I like that. Okay. Uh, what about? Let me see. Um, I always end up asking uh, this question: Have you always uh, envisioned yourself uh, of being a politician? No, or no, have, no. Let me not even limit it to po politics. Have you always envisioned yourself doing the work that you're doing now? No. So, so um, as I was saying, like I started out in government working for an, a legislator, and you know, the story of how I ended up there, that internship, is actually really interesting. So, I um, I was studying business administration at SUNY Albany. I didn't like it. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And uh, I saw buildings that I thought, um, you know, the skyscrapers, Corning Tower, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They just felt, they, they felt like there was opportunity there. So one day I walked in to the Alfred E. Smith building, which faces the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to the security there and I said, hey, um, uh, can I speak to the human resources department? And I wow. was just some college kid. They're like, who are you? And, and, and I'm like, I, I just want to talk to the human resources department. They're like, are you here for that uh, internship? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the one. That's why I'm here. And so they get on their little phone and they call up like the 20 somethings more. There was a woman by the name of Zairita Peña Herrera uh, who worked for the uh, Senate uh, Democratic majority at the time. There was a, a, a short window where the Senate Democrats were in control and that was it. And she took me into her office, she corrected my resume, and she told me, wow. you know, to apply to the New York State Assembly, even though she was part of the Senate. And, and I did, and then I ended up uh, doing that internship. So um, when I did the internship, I really looked up to uh, a lot of these establishment politicians. I, I, I felt like I wanted to uh, just, I, I thought they were pretty cool. I was like, okay, like, yeah, uh, I, could, I, could, I could do this. But, but, but then I, I think with time, I realized that 
nothing was getting done. It, it was like they, they were kind of in a bubble of their own and they didn't really understand. Um, I, think, I think they don't really understand the communities that they represent uh, that well, uh, most of them. Uh, I mean, some of them do, I guess, but, but, but I think, uh, so yes, yeah, so, so, so after spending six years working as an aide to an assemblyman, I said I, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with politics. Um, mm. but, but then with Trump, I, I came back because I just felt there was no really other choice. You know, I, I feel like the Trump it was just um, an example of the type of future uh, disasters that we can have mm. when um, the democratic establishment uh, doesn't do the work that they need to be doing in terms of understanding communities and mm. figuring out how to really listen to what needs to be done. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think it was um, uh, what is it? There, it was a tipping point uh, for us as people, uh, for us as a country, uh, and for us as a, as a society in regards to uh, who we are and who we want to identify with. And I think also through that uh, time period, we realized um, how divided we still were. Uh, and, and, and are on a lot of issues. Um, so uh, that that transition could either inspire you, and it sounds like what it did uh, uh, for you, Slava, was to inspire you and say, I'm gonna get back into something that I thought that I was done with, and it puts a fire up underneath you uh, uh, to get engaged again. And for me, I've never, I've never, uh, full disclosure, you know, politics has never been um, an interest of mine because for, for, for several different reasons, but politics, I, I do see that there's a lot more that goes into, um, in order to get something done, I think the process of getting it done through politics uh, is a lot, it takes a lot more time than being able to be, uh, be boots on the ground and say, well, you know what, I have this idea, I think this will work from experience let me figure out how to go ahead and implement it as opposed to waiting for something legislative, uh, legislatively to be passed for it. And it just always, as a, as a young man coming up in Arbor Hill, it, it, will, it always seems so far removed, even though the Capitol was right there, everything where uh, uh, the rules, the, the regulations were, uh, uh, were being made and presented was right here, but it also didn't affect the community in which I lived in. So, you know, it was always two different worlds for me. And, it, and I've, I've grown up understanding a little bit more about it, but also realizing or having somewhat of a, um, a distaste uh, for politics because sometimes it doesn't really affect the people and it becomes more about the politicians or the legislators uh, uh, and, instead of actually implementing the change. Well, well that's, that's exactly it. You know, um, I think there's two things there. There's one, where you feel like it doesn't affect you, which a lot of things I felt that way too. But, but on the other hand, there's this feeling when it does affect you, but you can't do anything about it. And, and that is how, how uh, I think so often I feel like there, there's so many things that we can do better, but we can't do anything about it because of the structures that exist within our lives and within our government. And, yeah one of the missions that I have as part of this campaign is to try to connect people uh, with 
with politics. I think politics should be part of, of, of daily life because it, it, a lot of times it affects us in ways we don't even recognize. I mean, um, talk about redlining, you know, it, de it determines where people live. It determines how our communities are structured. So we can, we can say it doesn't affect us, but it, it, it has affected us. It's affected our ancestors. It's gonna affect our children. And if, if, um, if we uh, don't connect to politics and try to, to take agency in order to take back power, then it's gonna to continue happen. to affect us in negative ways. Correct, yeah, it, it, it's still gonna happen one way, uh, one way or the other. It's whether or not if you're a part of the change and you're in the rooms to speak up and to advocate for it, or if you're just going to allow the things to happen around you and ultimately be blindsided as it's uh, the changes are being implemented that affect you two, three, five years, 10 years down the line. So, yeah. yeah it, we, we, we live in a country that's supposed to be a democracy where people are supposed to have one person, one, one vote, but we um, have people who have, who have money who have millions of votes because they can leverage their, their uh, wealth in order to uh, keep the system as it is. You know, so as, as, an, as an attorney, when I graduated from NYU, I graduated with 260 or $280,000 in student debt. Mm. And, and same did all of my classmates. And they had a choice to make. We all had a choice to make. Either we go into corporate law and help the 1% get even wealthier, or we go into uh, try to go into nonprofit and, uh, type work. And then we have to do for 10 years uh, work for very minimal wages and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and always have this debt always hanging over us in, in our young adult lives. Um, or, or we can just say, you know, we, we should do a debt strike and, and not pay back the debt, you know, and, and, and try to take to try to take political po political action. Um, uh, well, I, I went with the latter of those. Three. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, you know, it's it's but but you see what's being created when you have a, a system where people who go into into law schools, into universities who graduated, who don't have parents who are millionaires, then have this incredible burden. They're indoctrinated to go into corporate law. Most people, or, or into, into the corporate world, like if you're a business major, you go and work for, for a corporation. If you're a lawyer, work for a corporation. It, and uh, oftentimes it, it's people who uh, do the best in their studies, who do extremely well, who end up doing those things. Yep. And, and then, you know, the system perpetuates itself, right? Because they, they get their big paychecks and, and they're like, okay, well, I can get used to this. And then they keep doing the same thing uh, over and over again. It's continuing helping the 1% get wealthier and wealthier. And I don't even like talking about the 1%. I just yeah. use it as a shorthand because I think it's really maybe the top 10% or 20% are very different from the bottom 10 or 20%. But, but in any case, um, I think there, there's lots of these little things where yeah. uh, it kind of keeps moving forward, uh, not because anyone is malicious or is trying to make it uh, work this way, but just because uh, it's kind of path dependency. It, it's, it started out this way and is going to continue this way until somebody changes it. Exactly. It's, it, 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 it is a way of life. It is the way things have always been done until you 
you start to get people uh, 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 from this generation now who will say, you know, there's other ways, there's other avenues uh, to do it. Uh, coming out of school, having that amount of debt doesn't put you in a position to really to move forward because you're still trying to tackle uh, uh, this debt that's going to be looming over you for, for quite some time. You also mentioned how a lot of people will say, I'm going to do nonprofit work for the next 10 years and, and hope to have the debt. Um, uh, what's the word name of the program? Forgiven. Forgiven, right? Yeah. But what people don't realize is that I, I want to say it's almost 80 to 90. I think it's in the 90s. The 90% of the people who apply for debt forgiveness program are actually uh, aren't eligible or don't end up getting the program. So, and like I said, so because uh, 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 my wife and I are, are now debt free, and uh, she also went through law school, so she accumulated uh, a, a, a huge amount of uh, law school debt as well. But um, she she was one of the people that, that you mentioned. So you end up going to go work for this large firm or large corporation um, uh, uh, for quite some time uh, for that. But uh, most people don't end up landing uh, in those uh, in those positions that will actually uh, allow you to make enough money to repay that debt uh, for that because you have to be in the top percentage of your class to be coming out of school automatically with a guaranteed job and stuff like that. Um, so, but I, I'm glad that you said that because debt is one of the things or, or debt forgiveness is one of the things that I did see on your platform uh, in regards to, um, uh, uh, you making a push for us uh, uh, for that. So um, yeah, so uh, so so uh, debt forgiveness was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and there was another one that's not uh, that I'm gonna have to look back on your website. I have it pulled up right here that I definitely wanted to uh, to go into. But tell me more about 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 your hopes or your plans uh, for debt forgiveness because everyone, especially from the time that Biden has been inaugurated, everyone's been waiting for. Uh, are you going to come out and uh, are you going to delete all of the debt? Are you going to do half of the debt? Tell me what uh, uh, what are your views on that or what does or, or, or what or what would you hope to do uh, if you are elected to go to Congress? Well, I think uh, debt forgiveness has to be paired with free colleges and universities for mm -hmm. everyone. Um, I, I think because that's essentially what debt forgiveness does. It says, yes, you went to college or university, but now your debt is forgiven. It was, it was free actually for you to go to that college or universities. It was your right as, as a person, as a citizen of this country to go to college or university. Uh, and, and the reason it is a right is because when people go to colleges, to universities, I think they do generally on average make better choices. You can see that for example, in just, the type of people that voted for Donald Trump versus people that voted for Joe Biden. You know, people, people who voted for Joe Biden were much more likely to be college graduates. People who voted for Donald Trump predominantly did not go to college. When, when you go to college, something changes in you. You leave a community where you were, um, like, like we talked about just a second ago, you leave maybe a suburban community where you would have never met other kinds of people. And now suddenly you're going into a situation where you're meeting all different kinds of people from all, all over the world. And so it opens up your eyes. So, so college is a public good. It's not just, we talk about it as an investment, 
but it shouldn't be talked about as an investment into yourself. When you're going to college, you're actually investing into the people around you and you're investing into your community and your society by learning and, and gaining knowledge. And, and you're gonna be a better citizen having that education. So, um, so for that reason, we have to have free colleges and universities and we have to have debt forgiveness. But um, I, I think I'm a little bit radical on this issue because like I said, I, I actually, uh, I hope if, if, if I do get elected to Congress, I will uh, try, uh, I shouldn't say try, I will lead a student debt strike. I, I uh, will use my, my uh, platform as a congressperson to inspire people not to pay back their debt because you shouldn't have to um, subscribe you, you, because when you do pay back the debt, you're continuing to perpetuate uh, a system that is inequitable. Okay. When, I, when I talk to young people and they're trying to decide where to go to college, especially when they're coming from poor families that can't afford college or even middle income families because college is so expensive, they can't afford it either. Um, a lot of times uh, uh, they, they tell me like, oh, well, I got into uh, this really uh, nice school uh, in, in New York City, but I'm instead gonna go to community college because I can't afford it. Well, what does that do? Because a lot of those people are people of color, for example. So mm -hmm. then what ends up happening is that people who are minorities are not getting into schools where they can make the connections to become leaders of tomorrow because they're afraid of incurring debt that their parents can pay, from, pay for. At the same time, people whose parents are millionaires and billionaires have no problem sending their kids to prestigious universities. And then you look at the Supreme Court, for example. On the Supreme Court, like 99% of, ju uh, of judges and justices have been from like two or three law schools, Harvard and Yale. So unless you're in Harvard or Yale, you never get a chance to even get on that court. And then we end up getting these kinds of uh, rulings where they uh, basically strike down Roe versus Wade and allow uh, uh, abortion laws, which should never be able to go forward to, to, to uh, go into effect. So it's a cycle, right? Like it, it's, it's about getting, getting people who have these experiences into positions of power, but, but student debt and expensive colleges and universities prevent people from get, getting into those positions. And, and then we have these policies which continue to harm uh, groups of people. Okay. All right. And, and you know what? I'm going to challenge you on that one too, uh, because uh, yes, school is very expensive, and in a lot of ways, it's it's more expensive than necessary, right? But the other part of it is being able to make good and sound decisions, and it's a financial literacy piece to it too, um, that normally affects uh, a lot of colors or communities of of, of color. Right, because the financial literacy piece, and uh, one of the things that I learned also uh, coming out of the school of Dave Ramsey was uh, this guy Anthony O'Neill, and he has a book called Debt-Free Degree, and he just talks about uh, how the college process itself doesn't just start in your junior year, and it was just like you know being able to start preparing our kids uh, uh, that that process actually starts as early as seventh eighth grade, and to be able to start to uh, expose you to different things, but a lot of times we don't have the resources, we don't have the, the money uh, uh, to, to get those additional preps or, or, or exposures. And that's the piece that ends up uh, uh, harming us the most. But I always say that um, the financial literacy piece uh, or the financial literacy movement that's going on right now, uh, uh, not only for debt-free, but teaching people how to invest 
and teaching people how to manage their credit and stuff like that, the financial literacy piece also affects your decisions on whether or not you wanna to go to school and what kind of debt you end up accumulating as a result of the schools that we pick. Yeah, um, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think financial literacy is extremely important um, and it's important to teach kids about financial literacy and how, how to, uh, what, what kind of debt is worth taking on and what kind of debt isn't worth taking on. When it comes to education debt, um, it's, it's such a vital part of our life. It, you you yeah. don't really know what you're going to get in return, but you when, when you're in high school and you're making that decision to go into an expensive institution, um, uh, you, um, you don't really know what you're going to get from it when you come out on the other side, but, but yet you have to make the decision now. Um, it, it, I, I, I just think, you know, like I said, it's, it's a public good. It's, yeah. it's something that, that makes everyone's lives around you better. And, and the more people that, are, that our country has that are more educated, the better we will do as a country. And, okay. so, it, and so people have recognized that. That's why the government pretty much gives unlimited debt to anyone who wants to go uh, to college if they're a citizen, right? So, um, so, so in some ways we do recognize that uh, people should have these opportunities and it makes us stronger as a country and as a society. But on the other hand, we, we say uh, it, it's, it's a very capitalist way of thinking, right? We say like, if, if you, if you want to uh, pay back this debt, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you uh, do things that the capitalist system values, right? Mm -hmm. So capitalist system oftentimes doesn't value the things that are actually valuable. You know, we have these incredible cruise ships that are being built and you have hundreds and thousands of people working on these cruise ships, sailing through the Atlantic, through the Pacific. Is, is that adding value to us? Is that stopping climate change? Is, is, that, is that helping us avoid nuclear catastrophe? Is that making us more healthy, more sustainable? Is that actually making us happier? Or is that just helping the top one or the top 10% get a nice holiday vacation? Well, I think it's the latter. And, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I, think, I, I think capitalism isn't the right way to decide what is good for our society and what our society should uh, aspire to. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I think that I would have to agree with you uh, uh, on that and that um, that should not be the end all or begin all. Um, in regards to capitalistic views, but that is the that is the world that we live in, um, and I think that part of um, part of figuring out what your contribution or what your purpose to the world is going to be is also first sustaining yourself and your family, and how we get to that point matters. And you know, uh, it's it's easier for some than it is for others, but I, either which way, it is an uphill battle that we all have to take to have to figure out how do we get to that to that point uh, so that that way we can do purposeful work that isn't necessarily driven by debt that uh, you're uh, you're carrying around with you uh, unnecessarily and New York uh, a, a state a state that you're uh, uh, that you're running in um, uh, from from what I remember is uh, I know as it pertains to uh, uh, community colleges and the uh, uh, being on the front on, on the frontier of uh, how uh, college should be free 
or uh, through Excelsior College and different things that are available or afforded to individuals in New York. So um, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear and to see that that is something that is uh, a near and dear to your heart, both uh, uh, from personal uh, experiences, obviously, but for, for what you see it uh, or how you see it affecting uh, the communities that you will be uh, representing ultimately. So yeah, some, some of our most progressive politicians come from New York, AOC is from Queens and we have Jamal Bowman. I think he's in the mm -hmm. Bronx, right? So, mm -hmm. so these, are, these are true thinkers and leaders and uh, I, one of the reasons I was inspired to run this campaign is because I hope to follow in their footsteps. Nice, nice. Okay, okay. Well, I'm also gonna, uh, I'm gonna give you this question too because it's also an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And it's something that plagues the capital district area, uh, especially certain communities within the capital district, uh, uh, district area. Maybe not uh, Niskayuna uh, as much because it is predominantly a white community, but there's other areas that are uh, heavily plagued by it. So um, how have you been impacted by gun violence in the Capital District area? And, and what, uh, what are your views or what are your hopes um, as it pertains to uh, bringing about a change uh, to gun violence in the area? Well, I think it's devastating. Um, I remember uh, you know, when we had that uh, incredible wave of gun violence this summer. Um, and, and, and I, 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 I feel the pain of having that happen in our community. Um, but I, I think the reason why we have all this gun violence mm -hmm. is, is we have extremely loose gun laws. I, I've actually done research on this, uh, not myself, but I've read research articles. And it's, there's a very strong correlation between the number of guns and the amount of gun violence. If you just look at every country in the world and you plot it on a graph, for every 1% increase in the number of guns that a society has, you have a 0.9% increase in the amount of gun violence. And US has by far the most guns in, in, in the world. Um, not, nobody's even close. Um, and we also have by far the most gun violence. It's, it's not a coincidence. Um, I think that we, we have to tackle the issue of gun violence in, in, in every way that we can. So uh, some of the things that are more practical uh, to, to start with, I think are things like Australia has done where they've implemented mm -hmm. really strong gun buyback programs. Um, I think it's okay to pay people to give up their weapons and give up their guns because guns, guns are they're, they're, uh, like a pernicious virus. They, they have they have this ability to, if you know your neighbor has a gun and your other neighbor has a gun, you feel like you have to have a gun too to protect yourself from their neighbors. The more people that have guns, the more people feel like fear and they feel like they need to protect themselves from the other people in the society. So, um, so any, any kind of uh, action that's going to really address gun violence has to address it on a large scale. It has to get uh, guns out of everyone's hands. Not just, not just guns out of this community or that community, out of every community, yeah. right? Um, so gun buyback programs are one thing. Another thing that some people have been pushing for that I agree with is putting liability on gun manufacturers for deaths that their guns have caused. If, if, their, uh, if their marketing practices uh, get uh, the guns into hands of people uh, who are, uh, then, who then go on to commit crimes and the victims should be able to sue the gun manufacturer to uh, get uh, compensation for, for the 
uh, for the harm that the gun has caused. I think, um, we, and I should have started with this, like gun, the gun itself is an instrument of death. It's an instrument of destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I think we have to recognize that, it, that the gun for what it is, it, it's, it's uh, like, its essence is to kill. It was invented, it was designed to take life. And yep. so why, so we shouldn't have any respect for a, for a piece of metal that's, that's designed in order to kill people. We, we, we should not respect guns. And, um, and, I, and, and, and I think in, in that way, uh, we, have to, uh, we have to prevent gun violence. Um, but we have, so we have to change the culture also. We have to change the way we look at guns, right? Um, How do you change a mass industry that has major influence, money, lobbyists advocating for this? Uh, sorry, yes. I, I had to throw that in this lab. No, thank you. Thank you for saying that because that's exactly why I'm running because uh, it's without people like, like, me, like AOC, like Jamal Bowman, without people like us running and challenging the establishment who takes money from gun manufacturers with one hand and then says the things like, oh, we have to stop guns, but then they continue to take money from, from polluters, from the gun industry, from all these. And, you know, like being an establishment politician, in essence, the essence of being an establishment politician is being to take money from special interests but then pretend like you're working for the people. That, that's, that's the uh, thing that I hope to help break down is, is to make sure that uh, the same messaging and the same message that I say to people in, in our community is then communicated to the gun manufacturers or to the polluters. It, it, has, to, it has to be the same thing. Okay, okay, yep, I, I, I agree. And, um, one of the things that you said earlier was that how how the U.S. is is number one um, uh, as it pertains to gun violence, right? And you look at the tragedies that we have experienced um, from elementary school shootings to high school sh shootings to wh wherever you are, and it's just like legislatively not being able to get as much done to actually prevent that. I think it's problematic and disheartening. Uh, uh, it is disheartening to me because you would think that you know the value of life and the value of life is much higher than, than gun, but we, we spend so much emphasis on protecting the right to be able to have it. Uh, and it's not, it's not about taking away the right as it is being able to put things in play to ensure that uh, uh, one, people are utilizing them correctly for what they are uh, to be utilized for and not mechanisms uh, of destruction, which they typically are. Yeah. So, sure. yeah, let me see. Uh, there was, um, I'm gonna go to one question for you because there was something else that I, I did like and, and it, it, it stood out to me uh, on your platform. And we, uh, we talked about it a little bit uh, earlier, uh, but I'm just gonna read it verbatim just so I don't mess it up. So I, I did have it queued up, but um, uh, on your platform, uh, 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 you talked about how uh, uh, you want to challenge uh, your own racism, sexism, homophobia, 
and xenophobia uh, uh, that undergrids uh, 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 the uh, systemic uh, inequity uh, in our country. Um, here's your opportunity to tell the black, uh, the black community um, uh, how you hope to implement, um, how, how you how you hope to see the changes within yourself and how you hope to inspire other individuals to, uh, to I want to say, to, to dig that deep. What, what is your plan to address, uh, 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 to address uh, uh, this level? Because a lot of it has to do with introspection. So when you, when you put that on as part of your platform, as part of one of the things that, that you're running for, uh, how do you plan to reach um, the inner side of, of individuals to, to force us to deal with some of the things that we are a part of? Yeah, so uh, thank you for asking that. So I think uh, for me, uh, you, you said it exactly right. It's, it's about introspection. It's about asking why, why do I think certain things? Why do I believe certain things? How, how, has, uh, how has the society that surrounds me informed uh, my uh, conscience, but also my subconscious feelings about a person that I encounter? How does the color of their skin influence my thinking about them? Um, so so it, it is a, a, a practice of introspection. Uh, and, and then when, when I try to communicate this to other people, so to put it in like a more concrete example, um, I, I hate doing this, but when I talk to my mom, sometimes she'll say racism doesn't exist. Mm she'll say that there's no such thing as racism. And then how do I try to explain to her that systemic racism is a thing? Um, I, I, I think it's hard because she's very set in her view, yeah. but as her son, um, I can, I, I kind of know how to explain things to her in a way that she'll get them. Okay. So, so maybe I'll be able to bring examples of, of people I've worked with and the racism I've witnessed myself firsthand account uh, directed at the people around me. Uh, and, and I think the most powerful uh, thing that has ever happened to me personally that helped me understand racism is when, when people share their stories. Yeah. So I, I think uh, like on, 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 on one of the prior podcasts that I listened with you, you shared the story of how your logo came to symbolize mm -hmm. the podcast and your own encounter with racism and, and, and policing. Um, and, and it's those kinds of stories that what, if, you, if you tell someone that story, um, I don't see how they can uh, look back at you and say that racism doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. but, but the problem is that, you know, we have all these barriers between communities, like uh, mm -hmm. people in Albany don't usually go into uh, a, community like Niskayuna and, and are then able to tell the stories of, of racism. And, and furthermore, it, it's, I think it's really unfair to place the burden on people who have experienced racism to then have to relive their trauma to tell their stories. So, so it's hard, but, but I think it's, it's about bringing people together and to the extent that it's possible, trying to explain where each other is coming from. Um, so, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's how I, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, um, you know, uh, and I, I'm probably, I'm probably gonna get beat up for saying this too. Cause you know, uh, uh, I think, I think some of the onus, 
uh, uh, goals on both sides. You know, I think I think there's a uh, there's a there's a level of responsibility and understanding racism itself and understanding who can be racist. A lot of a lot of my friends would be like, you know, black people can't be racist because we don't have any power. We don't uh, uh, run the institutions and it's associated with power. But I, I think that when you just look at it from a human perspective and you'll just honestly say that we all have viewpoints and stereotypes that we have of each other. And the only way to get to the bottom of those or to change those is to be able to have honest, reflective conversation and uh, not as judgmental uh, as it can be on such a sensitive issue, because it is a very sensitive issue, as you just mentioned, uh, my experience. And so it's something that's near and dear to me. But I also believe in terms of how we how we push the conversation. It's not going to happen unless I'm able to hear you and you're able to hear me. And, 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 and we we may still never agree. But I have to be able to hear you. You have to be able to hear me. And we have to be able to have a mutual respect and understanding. And, 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 that, and that creates the opportunities. That creates people to, uh, uh, to realize that those things do exist, even though they, they may not affect me. You know, so. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I want to do, if I am elected, is have these community working groups where mm-hmm. people can come together uh, and work on specific issues. So for example, um, if, if there's a, if, if we wanna reform policing uh, and we wanna introduce legislation that's going to reform policing at the national level, what I would hope to do is I would, I would hope to have my staff bring people together and I would attend as well. And we would bring people together in a room and have people coming from all different parts of the capital region with all different views in the same room discussing these issues and trying to find a consensus on, on them. Uh, I, I think that's, that's it, it can be remarkable how people's minds can change when they are exposed, I think, to that kind of uh, a, a different environment and, and, and they can empathize with other people. I and I also, I also want to just add, uh, one of the people I'm really inspired by is Ibram X. Kendi, who mm-hmm. wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, and his approach to these issues is talking about um, when, when you're trying to implement policy at, at the government level, it, if, if you want to be an anti-racist, it's about creating policy that is itself anti-racist. And mm. what that means is that for any policy that you implement, be it environmental policy, education policy, food policy, whatever, you have to look at the impact that that policy is going to have on people of different races and making sure that any policy that you implement is remedying systemic inequities, historic systemic inequities in our society. So um, that's an inspiration that I take from him and that I would hope to implement in my uh, work. Good, good. And and I don't even want to limit the conversation to to just race itself because I know when I originally read the statement off of your website, it was also about... uh, um, uh, homophobia and xenophobia, because uh, I think I think the the conversation has to be had, and I think once we start to see people that uh, uh, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, uh, how it actually affects you in real time, and once it starts to hit you at home, you deal with things a lot differently. You know, like you know, like so homosexuality, I'll deal with that a lot differently because I have people that I love that are close to me, you know, so I'm going to deal with that matter 
in a way that is a lot more sensitive or uh, a, a sympathetic because now it's just like, you know, I realize how it affects you in real time or I, I know a person in real life, how this is actually affecting them. And the more we make those connections, the more it'll change the policies that we create, the more it'll change the way that we interact with one another and it'll change the way the world that we live in. So yeah. I really do hope that uh, 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 those are uh, things on your platform that you are able to uh, uh, to bring to life uh, uh, with the right support. Um, I know the person who you're running up against, I haven't seen him in quite some time, but um, I did do some panels with Tonko uh, years ago and, I, and we had some interaction as a result of uh, 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 me being on the board for a sponsor, a scholar uh, uh, for a while. So um, I would always see him when I'm doing keynote, uh, keynotes uh, for sponsor, a scholar or workout in Schenectady. I used to work in Schenectady. Um, but um, I, 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 I really do um, hope that the things that, it, that are on your platform in regards to what you're campaigning at, and I have no reason to, uh, to think that is disingenuous because your, experienced, your experiences let me know uh, uh, how you are uh, equipped or, the, or uh, equipped to have those feelings for it. You've been in so many different places. You've also been uh, uh, the person who, who, who felt ostracized or on the outside just because uh, of where I am, whether I'm in Alabama or Japan or wherever it is. So it'll force you to, to uh, not only try to find identity in yourself, but force you to relate or uh, uh, empathize with other individuals who may not see uh, uh, themselves identified of where they are. And the more we do that, the more inclusive of a world uh, we really will be. People always say New York is the melting pot or America is the melting pot. But uh, a lot of times oh, it's still segregated. It's still people identifying with uh, uh, who they feel comfortable identifying with instead of challenging ourselves to, uh, to learn more about other people, other cultures, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, other genders, you know what I mean? Whatever your, whatever it is. So, you know what I mean? That challenge ultimately is a challenge that we all have to ask ourselves. That journey of introspection is a journey that we all have to put ourselves on and ultimately the world will be the benefit, the beneficiary of it um, if we do that work. But you gotta do the work. Yeah, nothing happens with, with, yeah. with everything you said and, and, and thank you for, for uh, bringing that up. I think, um, again, all these issues, they coexist, they're all intersectional, um, they're all within our society and, and, and we need to address all of them. Uh, yeah. and, and I know I focused on anti-racism in my uh, comment before, but I think anti-sexism, anti-xenophobia, uh, anti-homophobia, we, we have to address all of that. Um, the, just, just even talking to people in, in our community, uh, I, was, I, was, I was actually surprised by how much sexism, for example, there is that, that, I, that I never, I, I, did, I just didn't ex expect, I guess, but, but mm -hmm. just, just hearing people uh, even even people who uh, were conservative telling me that, oh, you know, um, the other day somebody came to my house and told and asked me, where's my husband? Uh, mm. Because he's the, the owner of the house. Uh, they, they assumed that her husband owned the house mm. uh, or or a girl I spoke to at Albany who was in a in a, a science career. So she was, I think, studying to be a biologist and, and it was a predominantly male class mm. and uh, anytime she had an opinion, nobody seemed to take her seriously because she was a woman. 
um, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that these types of things are still, um, still so overt in, in our everyday lives. And I'm not even talking about things that are more covert that are a little bit under the surface that we might not even notice every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's if, if, if you're looking, it's there. You don't have to go far uh, 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 to find it. Um, and, you know, um, there was a book, um, I'm drawing a blink right now, Cornell West, uh, uh, Race Matters. And he also did another one, I want to say, uh, about um, Democracy Matters as well. Um, but, you know, understanding who you are is always going to be the first part. And then understanding where you are, you know what I mean, it's going to be the second part, you know what I mean? And, you know, I mean, you got to be the change that 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 you hope to that you hope to see, and you can't change everything on a macro scale. Uh, in my opinion, it always starts grassroots, which is what you're doing, which is what you have been doing, uh, trying to make the connections and 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 getting people to identify uh, with who you are and trust in what it is uh, that you're doing. And I think a lot of time for people who are not in politics, uh, there there may be an additional judgment or, or or burden that we place on politicians hoping that you know you can come in and you can fix everything and you can correct everything or you can de deliver on everything that's on your platform and i think obama was even scrutinized a lot for that because you know they'll say well you know you didn't come in and you didn't do all of the things that i hope that you had done you know so there's always going to be that uh, extra level, but it's trying to stay as true to your core as possible. But I think us on the outside have to have a realistic expectation that just because I want it to change doesn't mean it's going to change. I can still fight for it. I can still advocate for it, but how we get to that may look different than what you expect. Yeah, and I agree with that. And But, but I think what I want to see from politicians is a different approach. You know, it's, it's not just about uh, going to Washington and voting for something. It's, it's about how you engage the community on these issues and how you, how you educate people in the community and educate yourself from the community on, on the right path forward. So it's about grassroots activism. It's about uh, going to the protests. It's about getting these roundtables, like I was telling you before, together and having and, and being there and then really uh, discussing the issues with everyone and then taking the final product is, as your marching order. Something I didn't mention was when I was thinking about these consensus roundtables, the way I conceive them is that um, we would have experts come in who know how to draft bills and mm -hmm. we would actually draft the legislation as the final product of that consensus building roundtable. And then we would take that legislation and I would uh, I, I, that, that legislation would be the thing that I would stand for in Congress. Um, and th that very direct, that creating that direct line between community and, and the legislation that we hope to see, I think is, is going to solve a lot of, a lot of the, the, the problems that, that we encounter uh, when we have uh, politicians that are too distant from the community that they represent. Um, it, you know, it's, 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 I don't fault uh, Paul Tonko or anyone else who uh, is a part of the democratic establishment for uh, their way of doing business, but, but it's, it's just that the system uh, encourages that type of, of uh, politician to, to take shape. 
you know, when, when, as, as I'm running against Paul Tonko, like I think about all the money he has, you know, he has millions of dollars. Uh, he can raise millions more if he wanted to. Um, and the reason he can raise all that money is because he is very happy to take money from special interests mm. who are directly opposed to the interests of his community. Mm. And, and so, so of course the system sort of encourages you to, to do that because, because we live in a country where capitalism and politics are, are kind of go hand in hand. And, um, and our election laws are, are not uh, designed in a way to, to make that stop. Right and 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 the way, and our voting laws are uh, are gerrymandered in a way that dilutes our voting power in, in in cities and increases the voting power of of people who live on farmland, for example. So uh, you know we, we live in a so so I guess going back to I don't fault uh, anyone personally for for the the their decision that they make as a politician in office. Um, but, uh, but, but unless we change yep. th that, uh, approach, we, we're not going to be able to tackle things like climate change because we're, we're, we're just, uh, always going to be stuck between, uh, the power of money and, and, and what is good for the people. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And Slava, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with, uh, uh, two more questions be uh, uh, before I let you go. Uh, one, uh, I know I said it to you off air. Anywho, thank you for me, uh, uh, for extending your uh, your time to me today. I I, I know you got a, a trip coming up as uh, as soon as as soon as you leave me. But uh, um, I want to hit you with uh, uh, two more questions uh, uh, before I actually uh, let you go. Um, and this one here uh, has been a really really good one uh, 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 that I asked on on on, on season. Uh, Two of the back community. I want to. I want to see what it means to you. Um, what does success look like for you, Slava? Wow, that's that's such an interesting question. I I, I remember. I think you asking that to to one of the people running uh, in Albany for for the city council, right? Um, and and I, listening to that show and thinking like, how would I answer that question? And now that you <laughs> now that you ask it, I'm like, how, what am I supposed to say now? You know. Uh, Success, um, I, I've always tried to define success in my life. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting word because success is, is something that you might be striving towards at any, at, at any point in your life and then success tends to change. So mm -hmm. when I was in high school, success was making the soccer team. Uh, when I was in, in college uh, or in law school, success was getting good grades. Um, you know, and now I suppose success would mean uh, to try to be uh, to um, well. Well, actually, you know, I, I don't. When when you rec recognize the kind of uh, mammoth that you're up against, running against the democratic establishment, you know, you you can't really think of yourself as you know uh, having a, a large shot of winning. I don't think of myself as, as like a likely likely to win uh, the congressional race. I'll be honest with you, but but I think for me success would be getting on the ballot because something that people don't realize is that in the 13 years that Paul Tonko has been in Congress, he's not he has never had another Democratic opponent in the primary, and the reason for that is because our laws make it so difficult to get on the ballot. So you have to get. Uh, 
it says 2,500 signatures, but the reality of it is you have to get far more because they'll sue you and they'll knock a lot of your signatures out. So, so the target that we're shooting for is about 7,000 signatures. But, but the laws make it even more complicated. They say you only have 30 days to get 7,000 signatures just to get on the ballot. So is, is there any wonder why you know, people never face a Democratic challenger who are Democrats or Republicans never face a Republican challenger who are Republicans? And, 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 and if you never face a challenger, then you never get that sort of debate and you never get to uh, you know, really ha- be challenged on your views. So for me, success would be, uh, in, in the context of the campaign, success would be to get on the Democratic ballot because if, if, if in order to get those thousands of signatures, it would mean having uh, tens and perhaps hundreds of people wa- walking around the community, uh, getting people to sign up. Uh, it, it would mean uh, it would mean being able to enroll new voters who might have never voted before, and and get those voters to vote. Um, so so that would be success. And and then another another success. I would say that if I do lose, if Paul Tonko wins and, and beats the Republican, that would be success too, because the worst thing that can happen is for someone like Liz Joy to actually win the election. So, so regardless of what happens in the primary, I'm going to work even harder to help Paul Tonko beat uh, Liz Joy in the general election than I'm working to, to uh, on my own campaign. That, that is just the, the way that it has to be. There, there's no no circumstances in which someone like Liz Joy should be in Congress. Uh, someone that, that believes that, you know, Donald Trump uh, is still president should not be in Congress or, 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 or that, that the election was stolen. It, 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 it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But, uh, but, but I think success to me uh, is, is also in my personal life. And, and it, as far as my personal life goes, you know, um, being able to have a uh, loving relationship with my fiance, being able to spend time with her, uh, being able to uh, love each other, uh, that's success to me. Okay, okay, okay. I appreciate that, I appreciate that. Um, and let me see. Um, I'm gonna take you here, this is, this is my bonus question. Um, and I want to know this question from you because uh, you have identified as an individual who has been in several different places uh, before actually having uh, uh, um, uh, firm roots in the Niskayuna area. Uh, but thinking of your younger self, what is something that you wish someone would have taught the younger Slava? Mm. I think... Um emotional intellect. Um, I, I, I think uh, something I learned from, from my fiance, again, going back to her, uh, is, is not be afraid to show my emotions, mm-hmm. not, not being afraid to relate to issues in our lives in a way that is emotional. Um, uh, I recently, uh, so I, I, I'm a member of Honest Weight Co-op, and some days I stack the grocery shelves there. And another guy comes up to me who's also stacking the shelves. And he says, um, he says his parents used to be in politics, but he never went into politics because he's too emotional. Or he never, they, they, were, they, were, they were activists. He said, I was never really an activist because I feel I'm too emotional. I said, that's not a weakness, that's a strength. 
if you're if you're emotional and you can relate to uh, to the policies that are in front of you in an emotional way, then you're going to make better decisions. You know, when we had the the catastrophe in Afghanistan, for example, imagine if Biden could could feel the pain that those people felt. Then then he would have done a different uh, he would have done the pullout in a much different way, right? If if uh, Biden was emotional about the Haitian migrants on the border uh, of Texas, then he wouldn't have sent uh, people on horsebacks with whips to uh, to uh, deport them back to Haiti, right? So so I think it's 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 good to be emotional about politics. It's 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 good to be emotional, and and that's one of the things I would I would say to my younger self because as uh, growing up in a Russian household, I, I never had my emotions validated or recognized. If I was, if I was ever, you know, the, the other day, uh, the other day I was talking to my mom again and I said to her, you know, I'm feeling a little, uh, I said, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling sad. And she said, well, go wash the floor and then you'll feel better. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and that's, yeah. that's yeah. the kind of, that's the kind of upbringing that I had in a yeah. family that never validated my emotions. And, and if I hadn't met my partner, I would have never uh, learned how to validate how to validate my emotions and how to communicate my emotions and how to how to feel really acutely when other people are suffering. And so and 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 so I think that I would tell my younger self uh, like don't worry it's going to be okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like that. I like that and I appreciate it especially even what you just said in recognizing um, uh, uh, what you're learning and what you have experienced through, uh, through your spouse. And you know, I think uh, in, in my household it's a little bit different. It's like you know, because I'm I, I I identify with my emotions. I always have. You know, I was raised in a household. My mom was a stickler for that. You know, I mean, identifying how you feel um, and and what you feel and being able to articulate it, right? And my wife used to say for years, she's like, "How are you just too emotional, right? You're too emotional." I'm like, what do you mean? How can you be too emotional? You know, but. Um, uh, uh, and what she's learned through through our relationship is that, you know, there's a level of emotion that you need to have that makes you empathetic or sympathetic, that that makes you have greater connections with people. But there's also a balance in it. You know, what I mean, you don't want to be too emotional that, you know, uh, everything is sensationalized and everything is World War Three. And you don't want to be too underdeveloped with your emotions where, you know, you're just dismissive of everything. And I think that just as us growing as adults, uh, uh, especially if you don't have the tools readily in your household, you know, you have to learn through experiences of, you know, I mean, what level to give as it pertains to your emotions and uh, sometimes what uh, uh, to be a little bit more reserved. My mom used to always say, Ty, you know, you walk around with your heart on your sleeve and it used to drive me crazy up until the point that I actually started to realize what it was. I didn't understand. It. I didn't comprehend it when she was first saying it to me. I heard it, but I didn't comprehend it. You know what I mean? When I started to comprehend it, it was different. It was just like, oh, okay, you know, my emotions might have led me to say this or hit this person, you know what I mean? And then it was just like, okay, well, you know what? How do you keep your emotions, but also uh, level off uh, 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 with them? So I, I I appreciate that. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, listen, um, uh, um, I know I said that the last question was my last question for you, but this is. 
Uh, what's your favorite place to visit in the Capital District area and why? That I, I asked you that earlier. I yes. think I think you might have said that it was it was home, but I don't. Oh, you did, you did. And, and, yes, I, I said Cardona's. Uh, I said you my did, home. You did. And, and okay. Spectrum Movie Theater, especially a nice date at Spectrum is you know you can't beat it. But okay. I think also like just in on Albany, the waterfront is beautiful and and uh, yeah, I think those kinds. No, of no, no. I, I tried to throw another one in there, and, and then as soon as I said it, I said, you know what? He actually answered that one already. Uh, so, 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 my apologies on that one, but I'm still gonna throw one more. I'm still gonna throw one more at you, Slava. Anywho, what about your life's path? Are you most proud of? Final question. What am I most proud of? Um, I, I think, I think what I'm trying to do now is is what I'm most proud of because for the first time in my life, uh, I feel like I. I know what I what what I'm here for. Whenever I was, you know, growing up or in college or or in law school or working in nonprofit, I never really felt like I knew what what the future is going to be and and what uh, and and I never felt like what I was doing was was the thing that that I feel truly passionate about. But now that I'm uh, that I have this campaign, that I'm meeting with people from, from the community all the time, that we have a team of, of young college students, high school students who are coming to my house and we're sitting down at our table and discussing these issues together. I, I, I'm feeling, you know, passion uh, for what I do. And I think that makes me proud to be doing that. Um, and I think on that note, I should also add you know, if, if anyone from the community, from any any place in the capital region who watches this podcast, or even if you're outside the capital region, like you can give me a call. I, I try to be a very accessible person. So I, I give out my cell phone number everywhere I go. I say my cell phone number is 518-596-3293. And you can give me a call or you can text me and we can talk and you can ask me any any questions that you wish were asked in the show, which but but that you didn't get to, <laughs> that we didn't have time for, and so you can ask me the hard questions, you can ask me the easy questions. We can have a conversation. We can meet in person. Um, I, I I think uh, for me, uh, being a politician, uh, trying to become a policymaker is all about uh, all about communication and connection and feeling like I'm part of a community. So. Uh, I, yeah, give me a call. Okay, okay. Hey, listen, there, there you have it, the back community. Slava gave you his direct information, so no excuses. Uh, you can definitely reach out to, uh, to him for that. Uh, Slava, I truly appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to open up to us here at the back community. And uh, I look forward to getting your story out to the people. Uh, have a safe and beautiful experience uh, when you go connect uh, with your fiance and enjoy that wedding, my friend. Thank you so much, Ty. This was an incredible uh, interview. Thank you for asking the, the questions that uh, were, were meaningful and powerful uh, and, and for being such a good listener. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, the pleasure is all mine, man. I'll play catch up with you later. Have a safe trip. Thank you so much. Take it easy.